Hi, it's Fraser here. This past week on Spiked, we've just had a fantastic live event featuring Brendan O'Neill and Rod Little in conversation. This event was our way of giving back to our community of Spiked supporters. One of the many perks Spiked supporters get is early bird and discounted tickets to all of our events. And we've got plenty more exciting events coming up that I can't wait to tell you about. If you donate £5 or more per month, or £50 or more per year to Spikes, you're eligible to become a Spike supporter and you can access all of these perks. If you haven't already, sign up now at spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now onto the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever we have Spiked Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the delay to Freedom Day, Stop Funding Hate, the unravelling of the US media and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie takes on cancel culture. So-called Freedom Day is off. As the Delta variant has persuaded the Prime Minister to delay reopening. But now is the time to ease off the accelerator. If this continues on an exponential path, uh, then we would run into trouble. This virus is surging because Boris Johnson left the back door open and allowed the variant to wash up on our shores. On Monday, the government announced a delay to the removal of social distancing restrictions in England. I mean, this felt almost inevitable at this stage, right? Yeah, it's it's a real toss-up between... I'm laughing, but I feel like crying because I had hoped so much that they were going to come good on the 21st of June. And I think we've talked about it many times on this podcast. They were so emphatic about this particular date and mm. how British it was going to be and how we were going to have street parties and things. But then, obviously, the way in which this whole process has gone throughout the last 15 months of delays and extended lockdowns or tweaks to lockdowns or, you know, local lockdowns, not all that nonsense and and kind of spin, Mm. then made the other half of your brain think, come on, Ella, this isn't going to happen. And so it doesn't come as a surprise to many people. But I think the ramifications of it can't be underestimated. You know, there are all kinds of other rules and guidance still in place for very specific things. Um, you know, weddings, for instance, are still going to have that, you know, they're going to be loosened, but there's still going to be all these insane rules on, you know, when you can cut the cake, who can dance, who can't, where you, where can, you dance. can dance. Yeah. Wasn't there something about Polaroid cameras as well? Yeah. I mean, you, th- that's you how can, specific and micromanage it is. Take pictures on a Polaroid camera and you, but you have to sanitize that camera afterwards. So there's no passing it between gran and aunt. But the <laughs> dancing, you can dance indoors if you are the couple but you can't dance on a dance floor so maybe you have to dance in a circle around a ring you can uh, go up and watch people cut the cake you can clap but you have to then go back to your seats to have the cake brought to you i mean it's you end up sounding silly and lots of people probably will think about these rules uh, in t- in terms of a kind of flexible way it's it's hard to see anyone really being that emphatic and that sort of totalitarian about the rules but when it comes to venues it sort of gets taken out of your hands because people have insurance yeah. things to think about and the most likely incident is that most people are going to say, do you know what? Put off the wedding. Do you know what? Put off the festival. Do you know what? Let's not go on that holiday. And that knock, that sort of informal knock on effect, which means that the delay to reopening causes a, a, a sort of delay to our shift in mindset. So people are just putting off the idea of freedom, which is going to have ramifications for much longer than the 19th of July. I'm not convinced that the 19th of July is going to be anything more than a damp squib because we're all just going to be so exhausted by this. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, obviously people were excited for the 21st of June. Do you think by then, you know, 
it's just going to be a bit grim. <laughs> no, completely. And it because we've got to remember that this was a very slow roadmap out mm. of lockdown in the first place. I mean, it was purposefully incredibly slow to be overly cautious. And I think that setting that date, even though they always said it was dates, not dates, we all knew, know that wasn't really the case, or mm. at least in terms of bringing the dates forward. I think it became psychologically quite important to people because it was about drawing a line under this, mm. which is to say that, of course, like the epidemiological picture is going to change from time to time, yeah. that we are going to live with this virus, we're not going to get rid of it, that the time for these kinds of unprecedented measures, the times in which the government is expected or it feels compelled to issue lengthy guidance as to how to conduct yourself at a wedding or anywhere else, would in large part end. Mm. And what's so striking about it, as we saw reported in the past 24 hours or so, and as you wrote about, that it was done as ever on a picture which was incomplete because yeah. it didn't take into account the most up-to-date real-world data, not the modelling data, on the um, questions of vaccines. I mean, you should probably say something about that, but it, it just seemed, that seems to happen time and again, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's, uh, much of the modelling has been consistently pessimistic. You know, back in January, before the roadmap was announced, SAGE and their modellers were predicting around 5,000 deaths per day in the summer in their worst-case scenarios, 2,000 a day in their best-case scenarios in a vaccinated population. That gives you an idea of just how kind of out of control some of this modelling has been. But one of the things, even as it's got better, as we've seen the real world data come in about the vaccines, it's still actually been on the pessimistic side. It's still underestimated the efficacy of the vaccines. And most recently, the most recent model that was you know, published on the day that they decided to delay Freedom Day had data that is out of date, that was, you know, overly pessimistic about how the vaccines deal with the Delta or Indian variant. This keeps happening. Mm. And instead of looking at the real world, we're still relying on these these models that keep getting it wrong, that keep um, being overly pessimistic. It seems as if for uh, many of the scientists, there's no, there's no cost to being overly pessimistic. There's no, you know, whereas if you're a bit too relaxed, then you're probably a crank and a COVID denier. Mm. You know, there's no balance in this in this discussion. But when you mention the word cost, I think that's really important because even though lots of us have been banging our heads against a brick wall talking about the cost of lockdown for the entirety of this last 15 months, it still hasn't hit home that even now at this point, when you have, if you balance up the potential for uh, hospitalizations and deaths against the cost of continuing lockdowns, mm. be that on you know, all the things we've talked about, people's mental health, people's livelihoods, people's jobs. I mean, all of that hasn't gone away. You know, people are still on the brink of financial ruin, yeah. for example. People are still struggling with their kids who haven't been in school. Just because a little bit of normality has come back doesn't mean it's happy days for everyone. There's still a long way to go to recovering from what's happened to us over the last 15 months. And so that, I think that gets underplayed. Whereas you know, we've had some more sensible discussions about balancing risk, and at least that is recognised by a handful of Tory MPs occasionally. But the vast majority of government are still on this sort of blinkered trip of saying the only way to do this is to continue the process of lockdown. Well, it feels like the rest of society is screaming, we can't do this anymore, just because there are a few more people in the park and it's hotter. And some commentators seem to think that life is back to normal. Mm -hmm. It isn't for the vast majority of society. And and it isn't back to normal as far as how a free society should operate. And I think, you know, a sense of fatigue is set in with a lot of us, I think, because you do feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. You do feel like time and again, as you wrote about Fraser, you know, there's a 
slightly misleading picture or a pessimistic picture, shall we say, being painted and used to make decisions. But I think we've got to stop kind of arguing for this on the terms of the data, on the terms of the picture, and just try and put it in a little bit of perspective, is that we were now 15 months in to a kind of extended state of emergency in which the relationship between the citizen and the state gets overturned in which liberties are something just to be kind of gifted back to us then taken away again, in which we're subject to this remarkable level of micromanagement, in which Parliament continues to be sidelined. We saw the Speaker of the House of Commons take Boris Johnson to task again for announcing these restrictions first in the press and then at a press conference rather than in front of our democratically elected representative. Useless though they are, they're still our democratically elected representatives. We need to get the seriousness of this in a bit of perspective. You yeah. know, last March, a Rubicon was crossed for a liberal society. We went into a response to a pandemic that even people like Neil Ferguson admit they never thought they could quote unquote get away with in the free world, effectively. And any of the kind of safeguards you would expect to exist for extreme measures being taken in times of genuine crisis were never really spelled out, were never mm. seen to exist, were dodged by using certain bits of legislation, which meant you didn't need that level of parliamentary scrutiny and all the rest of it. And that's what we need to focus on. This conversation, it's only a, bit, it's only a few more weeks, maybe we should be a little bit more cautious, ignores the fact that we're still in this and there's no clear way in which we get out of this, no clear sense of what the goalposts are. That's why they can be so easily moved. Yeah, That is what we need to take very, very seriously. That is what we need to worry about becoming institutionalised. And yet the whole discussion becomes about arguing the toss over two weeks or three weeks or a break clause or whatever. That's what we're missing in all of this. And I think that's how we need to start reframing this discussion if we're ever going to put these kinds of measures to bed in the future and then them not just become like almost mundane means of governing at this point. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about Westminster for a moment. Dominic Cummings is back with his first substack revealing <laughs> what's happening. He's a substat, bro. Absolutely, yeah. That's the most predictable outcome in the world. But, um, you know, he he's, he's revealed uh, text messages between himself and the Prime Minister, Boris calling Matt Hancock fucking hopeless. Is that news to anyone? <laughs> it's Mean Girls. It's the bad book from Mean Girls. I mean, this is straight out of a teenage girl's playbook. Dominic Cummings, this guy loves the limelight and we love to give it to him. Mm. I mean, there is nothing illuminating that no one should be surprised by what's the content of these messages. Everyone knows that there are tensions between Hancock and Johnson. Everyone knows that Hancock has been a little bit mental throughout the last 15 months and has definitely overstepped his brief certain times. Uh, you know, he's loved it. The biggest, <laughs> the biggest revelation from this seven hours that we talked about in a previous podcast of the Cummings inquiry was the question over how they handled care homes. We knew that too. Yeah. Everyone knows what went on behind the scenes. And the most frustrating thing about the way in which Cummings is acting now is that he's, he's sort of trying to position himself as the do-gooder with the benefit of hindsight. I mean, if he really felt so strongly about all of this, he should have said something at the time. He's n- not allergic to breaking you know loyalty and he definitely is not this kind of shy guy who's afraid of the cameras that he likes to the image that he likes to put forward he should have leaked then when it matters when it could have saved lives quite literally i mean we have to remember that the serious element of this is that thousands of care home residents died as a consequence of the government's screw up and so he didn't do what was right at the time and so he shouldn't be given any credit for sort of spilling the beans now the more important question is there are still very serious 
decisions to be made around, as Tom says, you know, how we deal with reopening and what a future society post-coronavirus looks like. And if we've got this sort of bitchy cohort in cabinet or in government sort of sending each other nasty texts and that's how decisions are made on the basis of sort of personality politics, that's mm. a bit, that's what I'm interested in. That's a big problem for us because who's left out of this whole decision-making process, the public. It's just about who's in favour with Johnson at the moment, who he thinks is a prick and who he thinks is useless. Who's, who's in the court of, of Boris? Tom, do you want to say anything more on this? It's interesting because in a way, it's a just a Westminster Village story. Mm. It's the sort of thing that Dominic Cummings always claimed to be completely uninterested in and thought lobby hacks were ridiculous for being so obsessed with the kind of who hates who, who said what about who. As you say, Matt Hancock being fucking useless is not news to anyone. I don't think it would surprise anyone that Boris Johnson, particularly in a private WhatsApp message, yeah. would have expressed this at some point in the in the height of an extraordinary <laughs> crisis. Is it unfortunate that despite his obvious shortcomings, it's putting it lightly, that Matt Hancock is still in place? Yes, but at the same time, we understand the narrow political calculations as to why that is the case. It's mm. not great. But it does feel like with the recent kind of dom shells, as they've been called recently... You wonder if he's been detached from his focus groups for too long. Because, you know, the last one he was banging on about was the flat. Do you remember he had one of his blog posts was about that and how unethical he, he thought it was, yeah. <laughs> the way in which that was done. All of the stuff about the chatty rat, mm. which is important. But again, kind of by the time you've explained it, everyone's dozed off. It's interesting because, you know, aside from anything else, it's just a classic Westminster Village story. Yeah. And yet it's one that Dominic Cummings seems to be most keen on pushing, largely because he's obviously got a beef with Matt Hancock and he wants to exact revenge. And nothing so. else to do anymore. <laughs> I have some incredibly exciting news to share with you. The Great Courses Plus is now Wondrium. Wondrium is everything we know and love about The Great Courses Plus and so much more. Wondrium provides fantastic video and audio learning experiences. It has tons of great content to enrich our lives with mind-blowing moments. We can still stream all of our favourites from The Great Courses, including videos created in partnership with National Geographic, Smithsonian, History, the Culinary Institute of America, and so many other great institutions. Plus, there are so many entirely new and exciting programmes to choose from. Why not check out Wondrium Originals or learn all kinds of art and craft skills from their collections from Craftsy? Wondrium also has exclusive documentaries for you to stream, all of this new additional Wondrium content comes at no extra cost. I've been absolutely gripped watching The Real Russia, the politics of the pandemic. Russia is a unique and often poorly understood country. In this film, you'll learn how Russia's scientists became the first in the world to announce a working COVID vaccine, but also why the government has struggled to contain the pandemic more broadly. I can't wait for you to experience Wondrium. Prepare to have your mind blown. Sign up now through our special URL to get this great offer. You can have a 14-day free trial of unlimited access. Go now to wondrium.com slash spiked. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Wondrium.com slash spiked. So uh, on Sunday, GB News was launched and already people are trying to get it shut down. Tom, do you want to talk about this? Well, uh, we knew this for months, didn't we, really? I mean, <laughs> Stop Funding Hate, who's a group that um, some people might be aware of, 
has been campaigning against GB News since before it ever broadcast a single second uh, back in February, I think. They were mm. trying to get people to message their and to contact their mobile phone providers specifically, I'm not 100% sure why, <laughs> to tell them not to advertise on GB News because it was going to be Fox News style, all the rest of it, again, you know, not having put out a single moment of broadcast. And so since they actually went live this past week from Sunday night, they ramped up the campaign again, telling people to get in contact with any company that they saw advertising on them. And quite quickly, a number of these companies buckled. Um, so first it was Copperberg, I believe, mm. Grolsch, Ikea, Nivea, Octopus Energy, the Open University. I think Specsavers has piled in um, since our last check. And it's just really quite striking the level of, on the first-hand intolerance of these campaigners. I mean, we can get into the claims they try to make for themselves, but they are effectively just trying to kind of exploit cowardly corporates to deprive outlets who they disagree with of revenue and to shut them down. That's their intention. You can dress this up as people power. It's not. We all know it isn't. But also the willingness of these firms to play along, really. Mm. Um, The speed with which they said that they would pause their advertising to review it. It's really quite remarkable, really, when... For all the claims made about GB News, it is basically just offering a more opinionated, chatty, anti-woke alternative to the news. It is not the kind of fascist propaganda station of these people's fever dreams. So quite unedifying. It will probably just help boost the GBN's notoriety and (laughs) have more people talking about them. So it's probably going to backfire. But that doesn't change the fact that it speaks to this really, really intolerant strain amongst a certain section of the kind of chattering classes and the, and the Twitter set. And it's just been remarkable to see how strong that kind of sense of feeling is. Yeah. Ella, what do you make of this, you know, it, the campaign is called Stop Funding Hate. What do you make of this accusation of hate that is being thrown around quite liberally? Well, <laughs> it, it's really concerning because even though, I mean, Stop Funding Hate reminds me of when I was at Sussex and, you know, people used to go on about the fact that they bought their organic apples from a certain shop because of, you know, and played that kind of consumer politics. And mm. it's like the lamest form of political activism you could ever engage in. There's that exceedingly bourgeois, exceedingly unedifying, as Tom says. But the idea that you would ask big corporates, big business and people with huge amounts of capital and uh, ability to wave that around to get involved in deciding what is and isn't a good editorial policy. Because that's Mm. basically what they're asking companies to look at when it comes to GB News. Say, we disagree with your editorial policy, which is what? Being opposed to wokery and saying some occasionally controversial things about Harry and Meghan. I mean, Mm. that's as far as GB News has really gone. It hasn't been (laughs) to to sort of do it down for a second. It really hasn't impressed in terms of putting forward, for me anyway, a sort of a brand new way of looking at the news. It has been a kind of talk radio and film. I really wouldn't get my knickers in a twist about it. It's only been a week. Let's see what it comes up with. But the idea of hate is completely subjective. I mean, we've we've written on Spikes many times about Stop Funding Hate campaigns and the idea in which the way it defines hate can be twisted in, in, mm. in any different context. And, you know, the idea of hate can sometimes be positive. I mean, people hate their jobs, so they change and people hate their surroundings, so they move. People hate politics and their political situation, so they campaign for change. I mean, the pathologization of hate is a very, is a very kind of sick thing, which, which seeks to sort of police emotions in a way which is incredibly immaterial and can, and leads to very illiberal ends because who decides what's Mm. hateful and what's not? I guess also it just shows the the narrowness of the current debate where Andrew Neil, ex-BBC presenter, 
can be seen as, you know, presenting a kind of, you know, being a standard bearer for hate. Yeah. It's completely bizarre. I mean, the other, the other element of this is, of course, these companies are essentially going along with the woke worldview. I mean, what do you make of that, Tom? Yeah, I think the kind of the wokeness of capital these days gives these people more room to operate, certainly. Mm. Now, whether or not this is sincere or not, or whether or not it's deeply held is something we can get into. But that's really the context in which it's operating. And it's just always funny, frankly, how as soon as you see one of these corporates take some kind of woke stand or another, whether they engage in a bit of virtue signaling or in this case join some sort of boycott, you've got to be on Google for about 30 seconds before you realise they've been involved in some really dodgy shit. Like, it's, yeah. it's so striking. It's without fail. So, of course, the big one being IKEA, who joined in this um, boycotting of GB News, suspending their advertising. On the exact same day, this wasn't the five, six, seven years ago, on the exact same day in France, a French court fined IKEA a million euros because they'd found that um, leading members of staff had been spying on employees <laughs> through various different ways and means. People have dug up all kinds of stuff as well about them, you know, censoring promotional material in Saudi Arabia to remove women from it, not mm. necessarily sticking to their quote-unquote humanistic values, as they <laughs> said they were holding to when they dropped out of GB News. Nivea, um, as some people have pointed out, including myself, um, were involved in a scandal about four years ago because they were found to be promoting skin whitening cream in Africa. Yeah. It just shows that this woke capitalism is a con at the very least because it is incredibly compatible this kind of virtue signaling with old-fashioned forms of exploitation and in a way i don't think these people are insincere i think there's a there's a thing about identity politics which attracts these businesses it gives them a sense of mission because they don't think that making money is enough anymore it makes them feel a bit nervous it also gives their kind of working lives a sense of meaning i Mm. guess but if nothing else it speaks to the thinness of this politics, it's um, emphasis on like performance and statements and grandstanding at the cost of what is actually much more important, that they can, on the one hand, <laughs> try to act tremendously woke, but be, you know, typically exploitative in, in other ways. I think it's just so striking. And just how every single time this happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost yeah. without fail. You know? Do you not think if you were, you know, an uber woke person, think of yourself as progressive and left wing, you'd take a step to pause and think, why do I keep ending up on the same side of the debate as McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, blah, blah, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because being a, a leftist, being woke, whatever you want to call it, has nothing to do with working class interests any longer. It has nothing to do with working people. It's got no sense of, you know, Black Lives Matter and all these <laughs> groups now say, oh, we're anti-capitalist. We've been hearing that from students for decades. Mm. Oh, I'm an anti-capitalist. I'm a Marxist. It means absolutely nothing because it hasn't, at its heart, it doesn't have any link with a working class consciousness, if that even exists anymore. Politics is so weird at the moment that you have people using these grand titles and yet they're completely empty. What's happening is that actually a very aggressive middle class, young middle class politics is rising, which takes on the guise of being progressive, yeah. mm. but has no interest in changing the status quo at all. If they did, they'd be backing a channel like GB News for shaking up you know, everyone talks about shaking up the media conglomerates yeah. and, oh, you know, it's the same old, same old bias on whether it's the BBC or anywhere else. You'd invite pluralism to the news. But Even if no. you didn't agree with that. Even stuff. if you didn't agree yeah. with it. Mm-hmm. Spikes is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. 
Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spikes-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. We should talk a bit about the US media as well. I mean, there's been a number of major stories pushed by the US media that have started to unravel. Uh, most recently, it emerged that there was no truth to the accusations that Donald Trump essentially had protesters cleared from Lafayette Square for a photo op. Even using tear gas was the allegation. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so Will Riley wrote about this on Spike this week and really putting it in the context of just the growing number of anti-Trump big stories which have just completely unraveled. So this is Lafayette Square one, as you say. So there was a report released last week by the US Interior Department said that the president had nothing to do basically with this clearing of the park Um, because the presentation of it was very much that he, in effect, just Mm. ordered federal agents to tear gas these peaceful protesters. Turns out they weren't that peaceful. Turns out it was DC police who did this anyway. Um, And it turns out that this was something they pre-planned to clear the park in advance anyway. This wasn't just so Trump could have his photo op. And then you've just got to go back to the the running list, really. Obviously, there's the whole Hunter Biden scandal, something Mm. which was dismissed as misinformation at the time, which as, you know, in the fullness of time, (laughs) the the truth has come out much more on that front. There's obviously the lab leak theory, which we got into last week, which is arguably the most striking and consequential example yet. And then, of course, there is the storming of the Capitol, which is something that we don't really talk that much about in the UK necessarily, but a lot of the claims that were made about that have completely unraveled now. I mean, the, one of the core ones, which was this horrendous image of this cop being bludgeoned to death by a fire extinguisher, turned out to be complete nonsense. You yeah. know, he died of natural causes, potentially influenced by the stress of the day mm. and all the rest of it. But that completely flopped. Claims about the stormers actually being armed again. There's no, nothing to back that up. So all of these things are just perfect examples, really, of all that chatter about Trumpist alternative facts and the truth is whatever you want it to be. Mm. That's entirely the case with the US media. They were so blinded by this kind of anti-Trump bias and quite actively wanted to maintain the narrative, if you like, even if the facts turned out to be inconvenient. And, you know, you're, you're almost kind of a bit numb to it at this point. And the stories are so long ago that people almost don't remember them. But it's just another striking case of that continuing continuing to happen and it's and it's interesting as will points out that this is only really coming out now Mm. people are only really admitting to this stuff now because trump's gone basically and they're allowed to i mean it seems as if the you know american media has kind of designated themselves the official opposition to trump and didn't want to explore stories that could possibly help him in some way i mean you sometimes feel that way about the you know riots last summer the fiery but peaceful protests being the being the classic example you know had Trump not been in office, had there not been this real messianic fervor in favor of Black Lives Matter, maybe there would have been a bit more discussion about about that kind mm. of thing. Ella? Mm. Yeah, I mean, as Will point, I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Like, as Will points out in the article, one of the stories that, you know, had the space to look again at has been the case of hydroxychloroquine, which everyone rubbished Trump when he said that he was taking it and mm. there was a kind of initial backlash against it. And now it's come out that actually maybe it's not so stupid. And, you know, again, with the benefit of hindsight and greater scientific intervention and investigation, you can look at it again. The problem with Trump is he, at the same time as saying that, he was saying mad things about bleach. He yeah. was, you know, he was a 
a mad guy who seemed to have no principle and no interest in making sure that not just that his facts were straight, but that he was saying the same thing consistently. He, we've, you know, we've criticized him many times before. He didn't have any principles and that was part of his problem. The perhaps greater problem was that rather than rising above that or saying we're not going to sink to his level, you know, uh, that whole kind of uh, Michelle Obama mantra when they go low, we go high. The US media went even lower than Trump because they they did the exact same thing of giving into the kind of hysteria around fake news. I mean, as many times as Trump screamed fake news at people, people screamed it at him. Mm. And so rather than actually setting an example or taking a political stance against the kind of ridiculousness of the occasional ridiculousness of Trump, they sunk to that level. And so th- as a public, an American public, trying to make sense of actually what is going on, it's very hard because you've got a mad president who's saying one thing and playing a game actually most of the time was was that Trump wasn't hugely interested in making any real significantly political change to America. It was more about the kind of the press conferences, the pomp, his own personal uh, gain from his position in office. The news media played that played right into his hands and played that game along with him, which is that everything he tweeted was, you know, frontline news rather than th- looking at the bigger picture. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic towards the end of his presidency. And it seemed that people were more interested in what he had to say, uh, bitchy things he had to say on Twitter about people rather than his, for example, healthcare policy or what he was measures he was taking. So th- they both come out very badly out of this. But the more important thing is that Trump has been voted out and those media outlets are still there. And as uh, Will also points out in his piece, taking a very different position when it comes to Joe Biden, because yeah. so many of them are Biden supporters. I mean, the Hunter Biden story, for example, and the way in which that has been suppressed would make, you know, even the lightest conspiracy theorist as uh, eyes blink, because, you know, you do think what's going on there. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and you, you do, you know, the the fawning coverage of Joe Biden is, is extraordinary. You know, the level of, um, you know, really softball questions that he gets thrown thrown at him is 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 completely is completely absurd i mean we should also probably talk about the probably the biggest fake news story of all in the trump presidency which was russia gate mm. you know the idea that this absolute conspiracy theory that the president was a Russian agent mm. put in place, put in the White House by Putin. And again, what's interesting about that and what we've seen repeated time and again is that even after the story unraveled, no effort was made to correct these stories. No effort was made to really make clear um, the extent to which this was disproven. A lot of people trying to quietly walk back some of the more extreme claims suggest it, it wasn't as firm as they were. I mean, there were people even before the election in 2016 who were saying Trump is Putin's puppet, quote yeah. unquote, you know, and there was no real effort ever since all of that unraveled to actually make amends for that. And really that just set in train everything ever since. And I take the point, Ella, about, you know, the question of, and you get the sense they're kind of as bad as each other, but the same way, this sort of fake news that's being, you know, propounded, if you like, this sort of level of deception, this lack of, you know, attachment to the facts, um, this prizing of the narrative above all else, it's being enforced by this unholy alliance of big tech, the corporate media and mm. the state, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> and that's incredibly difficult to dislodge. Um, and whilst obviously Trump should rightly be criticised for not only the nonsense he talked, but, you know, nodding and winking at QAnon and all the rest of it, the Capitol riot, though very much exaggerated in its impact, um, was still a kind of example of how destabilising, you know, kind of fueling conspiratorial thinking can be and all the rest of it the kind of strength of those forces is something that's far more significant, far more difficult to contend with. And of course, it's coming from that section of society which prides itself on being enlightened, 
fact-based mm. and all the rest of it. So it's even more hypocritical. And finally, the celebrated Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has published an explosive essay attacking cancel culture, calling it obscene. It's set the internet alight. What have you made of it, Ella? Well, it's just one of those really welcome interventions where it's <laughs> it's all very well, lots of us um, talking about the problems of cancel culture, we get dismissed all the time as, uh, you know, right-wing lunatics who are causing storms in teacups. <laughs> when you have someone as respected as Sadiqie and as respected by informed over by the people who are most often uh, performing cancel culture come mm. in and say, hang on, it's not just that there's a bit of a problem, you are wrecking society. I mean, her intervention was saying that, you know, young people in particular can't have genuine interactions with each other because we're all so afraid of, um, I think she said, you know, acting like angels and trying to out-angel one another. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about the appearance of being good rather than actually being good, that we're essentially, essentially said we're all living in bad faith and having that level of intervention should surely make some people sit up and realize that there's something very serious going on because from her position as an author in the world of literature uh, what she's seen through you know experiences she had that she detailed with her previous uh, students who she ran um sort of scholarships with and forums with is that it's turning people into little monsters and that it, the arts will suffer because if you if you're not able to live in good faith and actually have free expression when it comes to art and literature then you don't have good literature coming out of it so her particular slant from the art world is also welcome because from bans sensitivity readers to bans on films to all the stuff we see happening every week Something has to be done. And if it takes a DJ to come in and set the world right, then I'll get behind her. Yeah, I just want to pick up on exactly that point. If it takes a DJ, I mean, this intervention has flushed out a lot of mm. the cancel culture deniers, hasn't it, Tom? Yeah, no, exactly. Because a lot of them have said quite explicitly that people who kind of consider themselves on the left or the liberal left, they've known about all of this, but they keep quiet either because they're probably a bit scared themselves, but also because they fear providing a kind of sop to the culture warrior right wing and all mm. the rest of it you think first of all what remarkable cowardice yeah. that represents but i think it also reminds you that despite the discussion which is often between you know two sides arguing over whether or not a problem exists or not um and the liberal left often falling into the camp of trying to downplay it trying to say it was exaggerated and all the rest of it so this kind of climate whilst obviously there are high profile scalps from conservatives who wrong speak and all the rest of it it's obviously having and has had an incredibly pernicious and felt impact on the liberal left world, the worlds of academia, the yeah. worlds of culture. I mean, these are the people who practice it. These are the people who live within it. These are the people who they know that if they say something out of turn, that their friends might turn against them. It's not someone they don't know and don't share any political opinions mm. with having a go at them on Twitter. It's something that's very much within their world. And as you say, it has taken this intervention to flush them out really, and to kind of give them enough cover to start talking about it. It's a bit pathetic, but it's useful, yeah. certainly. And it's just it's also just a really good read. I mean, the first two sections of it are kind of relitigating personal, you know, interactions with people who turned on her and all the rest of it, which is um, useful. But then towards the end, she just really goes for it. And mm. I think really captures something of not only, as Ella was saying, the kind of viciousness of all of this stuff, but also where that kind of comes from, that in certain sections of the younger population, or at least our generation, certainly, there is this self-righteousness. There is this viciousness, which seems to coexist with a constant chattering about being nice and kind to everyone. And that also there's a kind of fakeness. Mm. That's one of the things that comes out is that people who feel the need to denounce someone they've known for years and then to send them a kind of cuddly email afterwards, how so much of this is just in the glare of social media to the point where people almost live not only quite unpleasant kind of lives and you know have a quite unpleasant way of dealing with people, but also a very superficial one 
at the same time. And I think that's something that she really captures nicely. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.